Welcome to Future of Tech, hosted by Avishai Sharlin, Division President of Amdocs Technology. In this podcast, Avishai sits down with some of the most innovative minds in technology to learn how they are disrupting the present and what kind of impact they hope to have in the future. From the machine learning programs that are solving some of the world's biggest problems to what AI can do to help fight biological bottlenecks in human thinking, no topic is off limits. So sit back, relax, and maybe take some notes because what you hear on this show might just be a glimpse into the future. On this episode of Future of Tech, we speak to Chris Byers, CEO of Formstack. In 2010, Chris stepped in to lead Formstack as CEO for six months. 12 years later, Chris has not only remained CEO, but the company has grown to 220 employees around the world and recently started fundraising at a billion dollar valuation. In this conversation, Chris discusses Formstack's focus on intuitive, easy to use, no code solutions. Plus, also dive into Chris's experiences and lessons learned as a CEO, as well as his advice for new CEOs. Enjoy this episode. Future of Tech is brought to you by Amdocs Tech. Amdocs Tech is Amdocs' R&D and technology center, paving the way to a better connected future by creating open, innovative, best-in-class products and continuously evolving the way we work, learn, and live. To learn more about Amdocs, visit the Amdocs technology page on LinkedIn. So welcome to a new episode of Future of Tech. Today, I have with me the CEO of Formstack, Chris Byers. Hello, Chris. Hey there, Avishai. Thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. Uh, so let's jump in and start uh, from the beginning. Chris, you're running today a company called Formstack. What is it that you're doing? Think back to the early days uh, when we started, which was 2006, a long time ago. You know, in those days, you needed a web developer to get anything done on the internet. Let's say you wanted to build just a web form. That was something that was complicated in those days. You needed to pay somebody $100 an hour and get that done. We began our kind of innovation around really just helping equip people who don't have those technical skills to build solutions to their problems. So in the early days, it was a simple web form, a lead capture form, an event registration, maybe taking a payment of some sort. Eventually, that turned into workflows and uh, workflow approvals, so helping people actually process maybe a reimbursement form or something that might kind of grow from there. And all of that has continued on just this journey for us to equip problem solvers with tools that you don't have to learn. You can just kind of jump in, get going pretty quickly and start to solve these important workflow problems that exist and process automation problems that exist all around us in every department and every industry kind of around really the world. So is it about RPA? Is it about uh, low code? Is it about both? Is it about workflow engines? So I'm trying to figure out where is it exactly? The way we think about it is, is definitely really no code. I mean, for us, almost all of the time when people are using our product, they should not have to learn how to code anything. They might need to get in and learn how to build a form or how to build a document. Everybody knows how to run an e-signature, but they may need to learn a little bit. But once they do, they've got access to a toolkit that allows them to 
great example might be in every sales organization, you need to collect data from a customer that eventually needs to turn into a quote or a proposal or a contract. And often those need to land on something like an e-signature so you can close the deal. Well, as you know, as everybody knows who is in sales or around sales operations, like a CPQ process tends to be pretty like rigid and hard to use. Whereas most of us have pretty flexible, our way of selling looks different than everybody else. So we help people customize those moments of kind of data collection from customers, from sales reps, building those documents like proposals and contracts, and then closing a deal all in an automated fashion. So the our users build processes like that, but then they put it out on maybe their website or they send an email out with a link and a customer then can interact with them. So you've got this kind of beautiful moment of our customers are saving a ton of time and then their customers are getting this self-serve moment, which these days we all love. <laughs> we all love getting kind of doing the thing ourselves at home whenever we feel like it. And so uh, it becomes this kind of great interaction of customer engagement and customer kind of workflow and automation. So would this replace traditional CPQs or will this be um, in parallel or how do you see it? Our product can be used for hundreds of different use cases. I think of it in patterns. So the patterns that exist all around healthcare or finance or education are these moments of intake. I need to take in new information about a patient or a student and I need to get them into my backend CRM. But once I've got them in, then I need to onboard them in some way. I need to help them go through some processes to kind of get all of their maybe data filled out or work through a list of steps to get them kind of reading the right materials. Like if you're a new employee, the new employee handbook. Uh, and then there are all these self-service moments where every year, every quarter, I need somebody to fill something out or update their record in my system. And these are all like these flexible processes that live all around an organization. But Formstack not only connects all those dots in terms of data flow, but then gets it into the backend, say CRM, but can also use that data back out of a CRM to make a workflow or a process all the simpler. How did you find yourself um, CEOing this company? Yeah, you know, the story goes way, way back to university. I met a guy named Ade Alano, and he and I became pretty quick friends. We both worked in the IT department. We fixed computers at the university, and so we got to know each other. And at the end of our college career, we decided to start a software company. And at the time, that was really just a web-based software company. So in those days, if you needed an e-commerce platform or a content management system, those things didn't really exist, or they were extremely expensive. And so we would do those custom projects to build intranets and build CMS products. And so we did that for a handful of years. And that was right through kind of that 2000 bust. After a few years, we were like, you know, this isn't probably going to be something we're ever going to make any money at. And so we were actually paying the interns more than we were making. And so decided, all right, let's move on and do something else. And so he and I both went kind of our separate ways. And then fast forward to 2006, where Ade actually founded what is now Formstack. And so I was an early investor and an early user of the product. I'm user number five on the, in the database. So I kind of just paid attention for a couple of years. I was off doing some other stuff. And then Ade launched yet another business in 2010. And I was like, hey, I'll, I'll come in and run Formstack for you for six months. And I've been here for 12 years. So it's been a great journey to build from what was less than a million dollars in revenue and seven people to what is now nearly 300 people and over $50 million in revenue. Now tell me, the minute you came in, 
Was it as you expected? Everything uh, was running per what you and uh, Ade spoke about over beer or was it something else? Over beer is a, is a good way to describe it. We didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about the business. In fact, most of that transition was, here's a bunch of passwords. Have fun. I'll see you later. What I found was just a great team, a great group of people. So were things exactly as I... I mean, it's been a long time. I don't know. But what I loved as I got in was just a team that was fun to work with. They were super energetic. They loved building things. They loved getting new product out. And they really understood our customers and the customers' needs that kind of existed. I'd say that the biggest surprise for me was I walked into a fast-growing software company, and yet everybody kind of went to their office most of the day uh, and, and they didn't get out and really interact. I mean, over lunch, they'd have lunch together. The biggest thing that surprised me that was a change I began to make was trying to build relationships is a really important kind of part of our culture. And again, I don't think we had bad relationships, just wanted to accelerate people working together and collaborating and, and making decisions together. And so that was probably the biggest early change and, and kind of surprise I had. How important do you see culture in the life cycle of, of a company? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because my early days of believing what culture was, was something more like, oh, if you have a ping pong table and if you have beer in the fridge and, oh, this is culture, this is what makes a great organization. Eventually, it was like, oh, no, that is maybe those are great benefits to have. But take that ping pong table, for instance, that's really a representation for us about culture, which is we want people to work together and compete together and, and, and hang out together. And that's where collaboration starts to happen. And that's where those side conversations start to happen that really help produce great work. We got really focused on culture, I would say, about four years into my journey and really developed the cultural values or, or kind of identified them. I think cultural values actually exist whether you identify them or not. Identifying them helps it make you know a lot easier to select people who will be great employees and help identify those characteristics that help people grow. And but we started to identify those, teach them how to hire around them and how to promote people around them. Culture has been extremely important. In fact, we actually went remote early days. So we went remote. Um, it was a hybrid organization. So we had an office, but heavy, heavy remote back in 2013. It was really important for us to not only identify our culture, but document it early on. Because if you have a remote organization, it's just harder to teach and understand and, and kind of see that culture exist. If you need to look throughout the, the last 12 years, give me just, let, let's say, two or three pointers about things that were changed during those years. If, if you look at the company that you found 12 years ago and, and what you have today. Obviously, you know, there are more people, which is clear. You're doing more money, which is clear. Otherwise, you wouldn't have a successful company. But what else? I think culture still works in phases and seasons. I think culture, the culture that even that I built from, say, seven people to, let's call it 50, actually had to change. There was a moment in time, and I've seen this happen a couple of different times, moments in time, we're no longer getting the results that we once were getting. And that ultimately goes back to culture. Are we building, uh, hiring the right people and promoting the right people? And even recently, I've gone through a phase of, I think it was around the time we hit 250 people. Some things started to break down. There were these breakpoints we had been really successful over many years with these people who could get in the weeds, solve problems, move fast, break things, and even work very, very independently. All of a sudden, when we got to 250 people, we had to start teaching people how to better work together cross-collaboratively across departments. 
And so if you're in a big company, you'll get that completely. That's how a big company operates. For a smaller business, becoming a bigger business, that was a big transition. And so all of a sudden, we've had to rethink about culture. Now, ultimately, the values are the same, but how they play out look a lot different. And so we're starting to hire people who have the experience of working in bigger businesses so they can teach other people how to work in bigger businesses and and work together because we started finding that independence that allowed us to be successful for a long time, you know, somebody heading out, running marketing or running sales or running product all by themselves worked for a while. Now we're of a size where every decision a team makes usually impacts two or three other teams. And so we've had to rethink kind of the culture again. If today's Chris would visit uh, 12 years ago, Chris, what advice would you give him? My early days, I actually did not come. I mean, I ran that software business, uh, the startup that we had. I learned a few lessons. What I did not understand were, I'll call it the unit economics of a SaaS business. And so I actually had had more of my experience in real estate and really cash flow oriented investments. And so I came into software where it just like the components look a little bit different because you're not producing a, um, you know, it's not rent, let's call it. And so I would say I'd love to go back and probably accelerate my learning journey and accelerate some of the risk taking that I probably could have taken earlier on that took me a little while to kind of get up to speed on. And so I'd say probably that's in general, a good lesson, even for today. Like, I think there's probably more risk that isn't going to put the business at risk, but more risk we could be taking to try new things and try to get into new markets. Because as you get bigger, you kind of get this feeling like, oh, I don't want to break this. uh, So let's, let's keep it going. And you get less innovative and you get less willing to try new things. How important is innovation in your philosophy, in your business philosophy? I have only ever been successful because I didn't do things like everybody else did. And I didn't do them. I mean, my career path does not look like most people's. As a company, we went remote way, you know, nearly 10 years before everybody else did. I think our ability to succeed over time will always be because we make decisions that don't look like the next big software business. We make our own unique decisions that are innovative, that are different, and, and maybe even cause people in those early days to be like, wait, what are you doing? This doesn't make any sense to me. Those are the vital things that make us unique and allow our customers to be all the more energized and excited about what we're doing. They're vital to, to every day. What do you think, being there for uh, quite a long time, that uh, no code is so important to the industry? One is when we, you know, if we used to put, let's say we've launched new products from time to time in the early days in 2010, if we launched a product, pretty much everyone could find it. The proliferation of software companies was just not that large. Now it's such a noisy environment. Everybody's buying their own individual software licenses across an organization. I believe the ability to kind of tie those systems together in a no-code way that anybody can learn, that I don't have to teach someone, I don't have to get a training program going. Those are the ways we will build really efficient processes within a business. Because as you know, it's the people on the front lines that understand the problem. And yet when it goes up layer number one, get a little bit of the telephone game and you start to lose what the problem is. And by the time you get to a manager or an executive, all of a sudden we have no idea what we're actually hearing. <laughs> so we want to go solve it with some big implementation of a million dollar product. When in reality, it could be a very straightforward solution if somebody could get a no-code tool set kind of in their hands and spend a little bit of time with it and start to try things. The other thing I think about is 
if you've ever gone to describe your problem to someone and you need somebody else to help you solve that problem. So you go and you describe it, they bring you back the solution and you're like, wait, what? That is way off from what I was thinking. That is not exactly. We're all terrible at explaining ourselves. And so where you can let people have agile tools that they can kind of put it in the world, in the wild and say, hey, is this what you wanted? No, nope, that's not it. Okay, let me go edit, try it differently. That's where no-code tools can be really productive because you don't have to have one single implementation that you're kind of stuck with because it's so, it was so expensive or it took too much time. There are other workflow engines, there are other low-code, no-code solutions. So what makes you so unique? When I hear people say no-code, what I often find is it still means something that's hard to learn. So maybe you don't have to learn a coding language, let's say, but it still might take you a good few hours to days to weeks to really learn and understand the product. Our hope, and this happens every day, is that anyone, an individual contributor in any department can get into our product and within about 30 seconds, figure out if they're going to solve their problem. We have this idea called time to wow. And that for us is we want people to log into our product, start to use it. And within about 30 seconds, maybe a couple of minutes, we want them to be like, okay, I Maybe I haven't solved my problem, but I know enough to know that I can solve it. And so I'll go ahead and buy the product and start to use it. A lot of no-code, especially low-code tools, are really still very difficult to use. This is also a selfish exercise. I'm not an engineer by background. And so I actually selfishly love no-code tools. If you presented a workflow problem like, hey, this CPQ process isn't working or this patient onboarding process isn't working, most people could get a piece of paper out, sketch out a better process. It's taking that conceptually, though, and putting it into the world that's hard. I think about it that way, which is we want to intersect those people who know exactly how to solve the problem. They just don't have the tools to do it, which is me. And so that's where I say it's a selfish exercise every time we're building something for that non-technical user. But in a way, a workflow engine needs to connect something. But at the back end, there are still some other engines that need to be integrated. Or So how, how do you manage those? Are you coming with the pre-integration to hundreds of different solutions or... Yeah. So one of the things that, uh, you know, in 2008, 9, 10 was the rise of the kind of the open API. And so in those early days, we began to build integrations. And what we've built now is more than uh, 200 native integrations. So what I mean by that is they don't rely on a Zapier or a Power Automate to get the job done. You can go into our product, put your credentials into Salesforce, for instance, and start to connect our forms or our documents uh, straight into Salesforce. And so even in a no-code way, you might have to get some credentials from your IT department or somebody that's not you. Maybe they want to make sure you've set it up properly, but really anybody can get in and build that integration. And when I say build, it's simply logging into that system and mapping you know, a form field to a field in your CRM, for instance. So it's a pretty straightforward process, but those integrations are very important to us. More than two-thirds of our customers are using us alongside a CRM, you know, payment system, maybe an EMR, or they'll just use our API to connect directly to a backend SQL database or something where they want to store that data. From a business perspective, or let's say uh, success, quote unquote, what happened recently that drove such a big success to your company as opposed to, as you said, you know, you've, you've launched a company nearly 18 years ago or 16 years ago. 
what happened? So why, why all of a sudden, quote unquote, that uh, changed uh, the growth trajectory? In 2018, we actually partnered with PSG Equity to make M&A a part of our playbook. And so what that meant is for those first 14 years, we had built a forms product that had a lot of workflow elements built into it. But we always knew that there are these adjacencies sitting all along the process. Because the moment you collect data from a customer or a patient or a student or an employee via a form, something happens. That happens to be for us, one of the most important things is generating a document. And so we bought and now fully integrated our documents product. Then taking that to e-signature becomes a bit of an obvious step. And so all of a sudden you've got forms and documents and e-signature and you can map these very complex processes. And so when people actually use three products together, they actually kind of the value they get goes up by nearly 8x. They tell us they save 15 to 20 hours per week when they implement all three products. And so that for us really helped us go much deeper into healthcare, into finance, into education, into software companies. It made our product a lot stickier because all of a sudden, you, to your point, you're automating these processes that hundreds of thousands of students are using or hundreds of thousands of patients are using. And so you're saving significant time when these processes are built. We also identified across our system, we have 25,000 customers, but that represents nearly 35 million employees sitting at these companies. And because we're a no-code solution, we've barely touched the surface. We have a couple hundred thousand of those 35 million employees using our products to build process. Well, that by itself is a $2 billion opportunity to simply never sell a net new customer, just continue to expand with our current customer set. Those are some of the elements that came together that caused kind of investors to say, wow, this is a really interesting story. Let's further invest here and see what we can do to, to grow this into something bigger. Interesting. Now tell me, is there something which is unique to the verticals that you've mentioned? Like, uh, would the workflow engine be different in the healthcare industry than in banking or in, I don't know, tech companies? The industries I mentioned probably represent, one of the key things they represent and, and why we're competitive there is we made security and compliance an early push. So I think it was 2015 where we first got HIPAA compliant. But even since then, we've made sure that HIPAA compliance isn't like just a check mark is out there, but we want to make sure the largest hospital systems in the United States or even globally, where, where uh, although HIPAA doesn't apply, but where security does, we want the biggest companies to be able to use our product, get through procurement and vendor review. And so because of that, it actually bridges into finance and education where their data security, their compliance is vital. You're also talking about industries who don't historically, because of all those compliance needs, have access to forward-thinking products. They tend to have to use older legacy products because those were the ones that were compliant and maybe they were on-premise. We find a lot of success is being compliant really speaking the language of, of an organization that has these much more complex processes, but also wants their department to solve the problem and not always have to send it to the IT department. You've mentioned security. Did you face in the past customers coming and say, how can you maintain security while being a SaaS vendor? We started to embrace probably the first six or seven years. We really had a completely touchless product. So you dropped your email address in, you use the product, you dropped your credit card in when we never talked to you. And maybe if you had a support request, of course, we'd help out. But it was seven, eight years in that we said, 
there are these large companies coming in and using our product, but they're limited. Um, so a, a hospital would be a great example where large hospital system in Florida came to us many years ago, probably 2016. They simply wanted some forms for their website. They had a number of websites across the state and wanted some contact forms. But eventually they were like, oh, this is really interesting. We could automate some patient processes, but you need HIPAA compliant. And so we went through that process with them. They got really comfortable. And then over the course of time, they built what is now nearly a thousand forms and document processes living across actually lots of different departments across really the entire hospital system. But it, it was that moment where they went through that full call it procurement process or vendor process that they said, all right, this is a secure way to store data and we can keep our patient data uh, kind of available and out there. I see. How, if at all, you inject AI into the way you work? RPA, AI for us, we have really avoided, I would even say, that no-code concept for us is we want to make this dead simple for anybody in an organization to use. And the moment you get into RPA, the moment you get into AI, you get into some fairly complex concepts and ideas that you have to learn. We will probably move there someday, but we actually love to stay right at the level where anybody can feel comfortable getting into our product and getting going fast. So fast simplicity, um, does it come in a way as an obstacle to being to address more complex work, workflow uh, demands? What you're not going to see as much of is, let's say, a, a, a C you know, an enterprise C-level kind of project coming along and saying, hey, let's use Formstack. It's going to go across the entire organization. But what you will find for us is the department level user coming in and they start to automate something. I mean, a great example would be kind of a large retailer, their HR department has hundreds of thousands of employees and they have leaves of absence that they're processing all the time. In fact, they process thousands of them every single day, hundreds of thousands a year. As they use our product, all of a sudden that process is completely automated. And that's a very, very, very small process, but it touches the entire organization. So it's this interesting, maybe it's not something that weaves through every department, but every employee gets to experience the ease of kind of using the product. But then what happens is HR shares that idea with somebody in another department and all of a sudden they're like, oh, let's do a POC of something. And uh, maybe it's the sales team trying to automate some better sales process, or maybe it's somebody in support trying to better serve their customers. And then they'll try it out and keep growing in their own department. So what you'll tend to see is over time, it's maybe not one big complex process that's just running across an organization, but it's hundreds or thousands of kind of mid-sized processes, but as those add up, all of a sudden, lots of people are benefiting from it as opposed to just one single workflow kind of process that's existing across the whole organization. And once you're in, is it what uh, word to mouth or is it something that you're, uh, you're then, you have salespeople that are trying to, uh, to extend your uh, first, you know, the beauty of our product, and as I mentioned, that $2 billion opportunity, I mean, that's one of the reasons that, that opportunity uh, excited investors is we have actually done almost nothing. It is mostly word of mouth that grows within an organization. We do have sales reps that will help kind of manage accounts that do exist, but we have not yet built those systems to say, all right, what's the pattern that exists in a company that's 250 people or 500 people in healthcare that we can just pull out the scorecard and let's just start to work through it. And all of a sudden, 
expand into an entire organization. Those are some great opportunities that we've got ahead and are beginning to work on, but uh, not yet implemented. So we have built a product that thankfully has a great kind of word of mouth and people get really excited about it once they start using it. How do you uh, persuade someone to join your company, especially in today's very competitive environment? In early days, we, well, for, for the past call it eight years up until 2020 hit, having a remote environment was something that was enormously beneficial because people could work, you know, those early days, people could uh, come work for us and they could live wherever they wanted. And in fact, we had plenty of people over the years who chose to come work for us. And then they'd go on a year long journey around the world to, to work, but also to experience the world. Now, of course, 2020 hits and, and everybody begins to shift into remote. And so a couple of the things that are still very advantageous for us is even when we went remote, people who go to remote today do it out of necessity. We still do it out of choice. And so for us, we want to build a great culture and environment. And so even though we're interacting via Zoom a lot, via Slack and things like that, we want to make sure that relationships are really key. Because when you get into a remote world, it can be real easy to fall into a, hey, this is just a binary. This is what I go do, but I don't really enjoy it. And I don't really enjoy the people. We are still prioritizing, for instance, two big events every year. We just got done with one in Orlando a couple of weeks ago where we got the entire company physically together just to hang out. And that's all it is, is a little bit of vision and mostly just hang out, go to play some fun sports together and, and hang out and build those relationships. And then teams will do kind of that same thing another part of the year. They'll choose a different destination to go to and the marketing team or the engineering team or the CX team will all get together somewhere. So those are big priorities that I think still create some advantage over companies who've not yet understood how to create some of those environments. The other thing I'd say, and this is going to sound really basic, but we overinvested in HR when we first started going remote. One of the things we specifically invested in was onboarding new employees. As we've all experienced, we've all experienced starting a job day one and someone's like, hey, you sit over there. Uh, see you later. Hope it goes all right. It's not great, but it works in an office environment because you're like, okay, well, I talk to that person and they can, I can learn where the bathroom is. And all of a sudden it kind of works. But if you're sitting at home in a remote environment and you don't have a really strong process to carry you probably for, through the first nearly 90 days, you're kind of stuck because you're like, I don't know anyone and I don't even know where to start reaching out to people. To me, those are some really important things to build culture and bring people into, but those are hard things to orchestrate. Clear. Now, I would like to uh, also use your experience because you mentioned you grew and part of uh, growing was to pick up the right leaders and the right people that uh, had the experience that, we, you know, is, is different from a uh, hundreds of people company to, you know, few individuals. Uh, what are the characteristics that you are searching for beside experience uh, in a leader? One of my goals is making sure our leadership team enjoys working together. Not only, of course, do I have confidence in them because of their experience, et cetera, but they enjoy working together because these are hard problems we're trying to solve. And especially in 2020, 2021, 2022, these are hard times. Like <laughs> things are not normal. And so having a team that you are excited to see and excited to spend time with when you physically do get together. And that's really important. And that bleeds out into the entire organization because 
you don't think about it, but if, if a core leadership team, for instance, is not gelling well together, everybody feels it. And that's a pretty soft, non-businessy, we're not getting anything done by, by that comment. But to me, if you can build those great relationships, it just makes every day a lot better and a lot easier to kind of get through the challenges we do have. I think the other skill set is, especially as we are in a remote environment, it's a different skill set to kind of build camaraderie across video, which is where so much of life now takes place. You're starting to have to find people who can engage that way. And there aren't these like technical challenges in getting going. They're just like good at it. They, there's no problem. They know that their natural setting needs to look nice. And then they need to be able to kind of pull people in, even via video. And that's a little bit of a different challenge. Um, even for me, I'm, I'm an intuitive person. And so I love walking around a room to kind of get the feel. How's it going? What does it feel like in a room of 50 people on screen? Just doesn't work. And so you've got to find new ways to kind of get through to people. And so finding people who are just naturally skilled at that, naturally engaging via video actually becomes pretty important. So those are a couple of things I've been thinking about. Interesting. Thanks. Now, I would like to, to ask you a few personal questions, if I may. Yeah. <laughs> um, tell me, can you share with me a mistake that you had in the past that is something that we can learn from? I would say one of the mistakes that I probably continue to make over and over and over again is I move too slow when something is not going well. I think as leaders, we often can quickly identify that some a project isn't going well, a team member isn't working out. And we are compassionate and we're empathetic. So it makes us too patient, I think, at times. And we put too much stock into the person that we're dealing with when we forget if a person is kind of failing their team or failing the organization. It's not just this one-to-one -one relationship that's kind of challenged. They're causing this challenge to like grow and grow and grow across the organization. And I'd say even these past two, two and a half years, I think it's forced us to try to be more empathetic, which has then potentially made us even more patient with things that in other times we wouldn't find acceptable. And so I'd say the biggest mistake I've made is being too slow, being too patient with people and projects when there are times when it's like, no, let's just, we need to call this done and, and move on. It's good for everybody. Maybe in the short term, it won't feel good for everybody, but in the long term, it'll be good for everybody. What happens if the two last questions are colliding? I mean. You have a very successful business leader, not uh, one that is failing, and yet he is not a team, a team player, and he is not gelling out with your, the rest of the team. What's more important, him delivering everything you wish, plus being like the best leader you found on one end, and then the other end, he's not a team player. What's more important? Yeah, you know, that, that's interesting. When somebody's being successful, even if they're breaking a bunch of glass along the way, that you kind of look the other way and hope it all works itself out. I do think at times in the short term, you can allow that to happen. Sometimes you kind of need people to break glass to frustrate people because they're getting something done. In peacetime, I think the team is always the most important. Sometimes you're in something more like work time where things are chaotic and nothing is as usual. The economy is in a weird place. And sometimes if somebody's being successful, I think you let them run. In the long term, I'd say it always come back to that ability to work with the team, the ability to kind of work together is the most important thing. You've got to be able to get back to that after some period of time. Otherwise, everything will break down because everybody will be frustrated and you'll, uh, they'll leave or, be, or just be demoralized along the way. Clear. What, what keeps you up at night? Two things probably in this past 
period of time. One is, of course, the always chaos that seems to be going on in the world and where we used to be able to set feel like this was never the case, but it felt like we could set plans and they generally just worked out like, or at least the direction of them worked out. These days you feel like you set plans and all of a sudden some world event changes and you're like, whoa, hold on. How do I need to react to this? And so one thing I'm, that keeps me up at night and I'm trying to learn my way through is how to, how to celebrate just progress on a more regular basis so that as long as we're moving things forward, even if we need to pivot a little bit, if we're moving things forward and think, making things better, that is something we should celebrate. We shouldn't always need to get all the way to the end to, to have that moment of celebration. So the other thing for me that probably keeps me up at night is, am I motivating the organization? Am I building a, a compelling enough vision that people can get excited about? Because we're in a world that is very distracting, very noisy. And so it's easy for work to kind of turn into work. And it's my job to make sure we're conveying a message or conveying a destination that people can get energized about. And that's, I think, harder today than it was three years ago. And so those are the things that I think about quite a bit. During your tenure, what's the, uh, let's say, the, the thing that you're most proud of during, during the last few years? You know, one of the things I love doing is I've had an opportunity to work with mentors or business coaches over the years. And one of the things that I go back to in one of my first business mentors is this idea of our personal why, our personal mission. To me, where you can discover someone's personal mission that kind of exists, whether they work here or work somewhere else, and can kind of engage with that. That's where really great things start to happen. And so where over time, people have said, I am doing the thing that I love doing. And because I worked at Formstack, I, I am I'm thankful for that. And because I've worked here, I've grown. No matter what I do next, I'll be better for it. Those are the things that feel the best to me. And what that often results in is ideas coming to life at Formstack that I didn't create. In fact, my ideas coming to life are probably usually the worst of, uh, <laughs> you know, the worst of things. It's when other people who see the problem that much closer and can bring some great innovation, rally people around them to kind of go put it into the wild, and then it's successful. Like those are the most exciting times for me to say, that is awesome. And I didn't do it. <laughs> If one of the people listening to us is about to become a CEO for the first time, what will be your advice to him? Put a list of things together that have made you the most successful up until this time or that you are best at. So let me give you an example. Finance, I have a finance degree. And so finance and numbers and spreadsheets, I'm actually pretty good at. So I'd say make a list of those things and then get clear with it. And then remember every day, those are the things you probably shouldn't be doing because those are the things that you keep close to the vest. You uh, don't delegate and they keep trapping you. Like for me, when all of a sudden the economy starts to uh, be questionable, I'm like, oh, well, do we have the right data telling us that story early? And then I'll go down this rabbit hole of building systems and spreadsheets and whatever. And it's like, wait, I've got a whole team of people who should be doing that and can do that. And they're probably smarter than me, but it's probably getting away from some of those things that you probably are going to tend to get distracted by when you need to do three or four things really well. You need to build a great vision. You need to build a great team and you need to make sure there's enough cash to pay the bills. And if you can do those three things, you're going to have an organization that's successful over the long term. Because you do that little thing over here on the side, 
it feels good because we love checking our boxes, but in reality, it probably doesn't move the needle. During the years, how were you able to balance between work and life? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I would say even when I'm away from work, I'm thinking about work. So maybe I'm not behind my computer doing something, but I'm thinking about some work problem. The only way that I've ever found to really disconnect from work and get a little bit of that balance is probably in vacations where I've said, hey, like I am, I am cutting myself off. You guys have to survive without me. And those are times where I, I can kind of check out. And so I think it's making sure, and that's not for everybody. Some people can kind of walk out the door and go play a sport, um, which I actually do think can be very helpful to kind of distract yourself. But I'd say uh, finding enough times like that where you can completely disconnect from work, maybe put your phone, not even just work, but like the internet, put your phone down, go do something for a couple hours where you don't have access to technology. Those are the times where my brain just opens up and I'm like, okay, life is good and and every work problem that I have will be fine. So I think those are things that I think about. Well, one of the questions that I always like to hear is about uh, you going back into, you know, your uh, college years. Uh, would you take the same journey? Uh, two great things that it's amazing. The, the, the random, I actually didn't go to the, this particular college until my sophomore year. I, I went to another one and wanted to make a change and so made this leap. Well, there are two people that I've met at that school that have made an enormous difference in my life. One is Ade that I mentioned that founded Formstack. And so that relationship has been beneficial, not only from a work perspective, but it's just a good friend. Like we love talking about business and, and the world and ideas. Um, but the other person I met was my wife. She has been not only my best friend, but she is actually my best coach ever. I mean, she has listened to me talk about every random business problem for 12 years. And she'll listen and ask me questions and often unlocks some of the thinking that I have. And so, of course, from a personal perspective, that was a wonderful choice, but it has been actually you know, work and life beneficial in that case. So absolutely, I would. I don't know that I could ever orchestrate what all came together there. <laughs> Your first, uh, as, as you shared with us earlier, you are not a techie. You, you did not decide to go to that route. How do you find technology today? Yeah, you know, one of the, as I mentioned, that what I'm all right at is uh, understanding problems and how to solve them. And then I'm all right at hearing people's response to how they're going to solve them and knowing if they've really understood the problem and, and helping them kind of get there. That's what's allowed me to kind of work in technology and be successful, I think, without having that tech background. The other side for me is I just love the fact that I don't have to learn to code and I can solve really interesting problems. And in fact, the rise of no code, the rise of low code makes my life better every day because there's more things I can have access to that I can build when I see a problem, when I see a, a workflow problem or a communications challenge or whatever. And so just love the opportunity to, to work in technology and uh, you know, make things better, save people time, save people money. Do you still consider uh, Formstock as a startup? You know, what I think is very much a startup is the personality of, of the people around the table who want to get things done every day. They, wanna, you know, they don't want to work on projects that are going to take six months or a year. They want to work on projects that can get done this week or this month or this quarter. And they want to feel like they can kind of climb a hill and climb a new hill on a regular basis. And so that personality, I think, is very much the same. 
you know, the thing that is, of course, very different is it does take longer to get things done. And so you don't get to release a huge major product release every month, which is what we used to do, or every two weeks even. Those are things that have changed, but I think the personality still has very much a startup uh, mentality. Which is great. Chris, it was uh, great fun to host this podcast and to, uh, to enjoy listening to you. I thank you for your, your time. Yeah, Abhishek, great to meet and great to uh, have this conversation. Thanks for listening to Future of Tech. If you like what you heard and want more, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you have any comments or questions, feel free to write to our host, Avishai Sharlin, directly on LinkedIn. Music